the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. I'm Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we have Carol Newsom, uh, who is a professor of mine at Emory University when I was doing my doctoral studies and is someone whose writing I constantly find engaging. And I, I think she has such an infectious curiosity. You'll pick that up in this interview. Um, you know, she's retired now, semi-retired, um, but has not lost her her passion for the study of the Old Testament and early Judaism. And I think you'll really appreciate that. I so enjoy this interview, and I hope you will too. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. Our guest today is Dr. Carol Newsom, back for a second time. Carol is Charles Howard Candler Professor Emerita of Old Testament at Candler School of Theology. She's written quite a few books, including Job, A Contest of Moral Imaginations, the Old Testament Library Commentary on Daniel, and the book we're discussing today called The Spirit Within Me, Self and Agency in Ancient Israel and Second Temple Judaism, published by Yale University Press. She edited several books, including the acclaimed Women's Bible Commentary, now in its third edition. She has translated and published some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, including the Hodeot and Songs of the Sabbath Sacrifice. She was president of the Society of Biblical Literature and was inducted into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And perhaps most significantly, she's mentored and invested in so many students over the years. And I'm so grateful that I had you as a professor, Carol, while I was at Emory. So welcome back to OnScript. Thank you so much. So my first question is how retired life is treating you and and what sorts of artisan projects uh, you're consumed with of late? Well, I've been joking that I'm not actually retired. They just stopped paying me uh, because I still have some writing projects, a commentary on the Hodeo to complete. So it interferes with um, weaving and spinning and other fiber arts, which I really would like to do more of. So so you're into the the fiber arts. Could could you explain what that means? Oh, uh, well, I've been a knitter for a long time. And as someone gave me recently gave me a bumper sticker, it says knitting is an apocalypse survival skill. So I think this is an outgrowth of my interest in apocalypticism to be able to recreate those aspects of human technology, like how to make yarn out of sheep and what to do with it. <laughs> yeah. So so you go you, and and you go to, you know, you search high and low for the best fibers on earth and that sort of thing. Oh, yes. And one of these days I'm going to get out to the Northwest where they have some of the best yarn stores and fiber supplies in the world. Oh, really? Why are, why are they concentrated out here? Do you know? Uh, well, they're relatively close to sheep farms and there's just a long tradition of, uh, of artisan craft uh, there. So, yeah, I, I got to get to Washington, Oregon and British Columbia. OK, well, I'll keep my eye out for some good yarn stores here. Um, <laughs> So I'm wondering if you could go back to the early days of getting into biblical studies and early Judaism. What were some of the formative events that drew you into these fields? 
Well, I had, um, I can actually remember the day I thought, oh, I want to be a biblical scholar. Uh, it was in October of my sophomore year at uh, college. And I had been thinking I would major in economics or something like that. And I was listening to my Old Testament professor give a lecture on the invention of chariotry in the ancient Near East. And I thought, that's about the coolest thing I've ever heard of. And then I thought, they pay him to do this. (laughs) So my path was not quite direct and smooth from that. But at that moment, I thought, oh, I have found my vocation because I just think this is the coolest field ever. (laughs) And then so did you think you would become an Egyptologist in particular? Or, you know, was that a launching pad into ancient world? And then it Well, I kind of, I knew that I wanted to study religion, but I got kind of attracted to um, the Eastern religions, so Hinduism, Buddhism. And so when I entered um, my MTS program, that's really where I thought I was heading. Um, But once again, in an intro OT class, we were assigned to do an exegesis paper, and I did it on Psalm 82, found Jim Ackerman's dissertation on that topic. And I thought, Why would I go study another religious tradition? This one just has everything. It is, again, so cool. So I decided, nope, I'm going to stick with this. Well, your your passion for um, the subject, your subject matter, hasn't waned over the years. And and that's something I'm curious about is how how you sustain such curiosity in texts that you know very well. Well, actually, I have always tended to avoid the classic texts, and I always look for those neglected texts or the ones that not so many people study. Um, And uh, I just always, you're always surprised when you pick up something that uh, looks unpromising, and then you start to unpack it, and you realize that there's something very exciting going on. And even things that I find on one level repellent, like some of Ezekiel, uh, when I get down into it, wow, stuff that's going on there is so challenging. So I just love that aspect of it. Yeah, that that comes through so strongly. And one of the things that struck me reading uh, this book, The Spirit Within Me, is is that you, you, you seem to take a very empathetic approach, even if it's a text that does repel you, you know, at, at one level, like with, with Ezekiel and, you know, it's, it's vision of, you know, sort of the end of the matter is you will know that I'm Yahweh and you will loathe yourselves, you yes. know, at, at, at one level, that's, that's not a, a pleasant conclusion. Um, but, but you're able to get inside Ezekiel and see the wonder of what that book is doing. And is that a, do you take a, a deliberate empathetic approach when you read or what's your posture? Yeah, no, I do. I do. And um, that really developed when I was working on a book of Job, because I realized how reductively most people read that. They'll choose one voice that will be their champion. Sometimes it's God, sometimes it's Job. But I thought, what about the ones that people love to hate? What about the friends? What about the prose tale? And so um, it's actually David Carr who, who gave me a term for that. He said, it's the practice of the hermeneutics of hospitality. <laughs> and that is you, you assume that for some reason, 
characters are saying these things or people are saying these things. And so rather than just react against them, which is perfectly all right to do at a later stage, the first stage is figuring out why would they think it makes sense to say this? And then I think you're on a, in a better place to say, and this is why I disagree with you. Right, right. Um, so and another hallmark of your work is your ability to draw from cognate fields in, in ways that are, are deeply illuminating for biblical studies. So how, how do you go about landing on a particular cognate field? Is it just you happen to read widely and then you, you think, ah, that's helpful for bringing to bear on biblical studies or what, what is it that, um, how do you go about navigating the use of cognate disciplines? Well, sometimes it is just a matter of uh, luck in what you happen to read. Um, But there's also, you just know that certain fields are likely to be congenial. I found anthropology, cultural anthropology to be uh, very helpful because in one sense, it's also hermeneutical discipline. And so the kinds of questions that they're going to be asking oftentimes have correlates in uh, the textual fields, even though the type of materials they have access to, uh, face-to-face uh, exchanges, are not the ones that we can use. But but there's enough similarity. So those are the easy ones. Um, sometimes it's a little further afield. And I oftentimes will just say, who else in the world might be asking the same kind of question, but with a really different data set? And so that's sort of how I came to think, I can't ask about the self unless I find out what the neuroscientists are saying. Right. And and then do you, okay, so if you read around in neuroscience, do you check with scientists then on like, am I reading this right? Or what's your process? Is, is it part of the benefit of being at a university where you get to go speak directly to people in different fields? Well, sometimes that's the case. And you can um, say, uh, look, I've been reading so-and-so. Is this person taken seriously or is this? But oftentimes I think we can use our basic critical skills. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, One of the issues about, you know, how to what extent ourselves really culturally different. And for a while, there was a strong attempt to say, well, there's a Western self and there's an Eastern self. And the neuroscientists, some of them were using fMRI scans to see if they could find differences between what lights up in a Western brain when certain words like mother are used and what lights up in a Chinese brain when certain words are used. And I I was intrigued by that, but I kept noticing that it was the same two guys who kept writing these articles. And um, so that made me a little cautious. And then I, um, I also realized I didn't think that they weren't working with a humanist. And so I didn't think that their categories about psychology or the self were very sophisticated. So that put me a little bit on it. And then to cap it all off, I read, I started just checking into who's skeptical of fMRI and why. And I came across this funny story about someone who did an fMRI on a dead Atlantic salmon. And yet parts of its brain seemed to be lighting up when it looked at pictures of children playing. 
<laughs> so I said, okay, we're staying away from fMRI. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe we're all just like salmon. <laughs> that could be I mean, too. that's another possible conclusion. But, you know, there, there are things that will put you on alert that don't use this unless you check further with people who really understand it. You're getting in over your head. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So I want to focus on your book, uh, The Spirit Within Me, Self and Agency in Ancient Israel and Second Temple Judaism. Um, w when speaking about the self and how ancient Israelites thought about their own selves, how do you um, how do we go about accessing that as a researcher? You just mentioned anthropology. We can't study living subjects. Um, how do we get at that in a text from a long time ago? Yeah. Part of, of the, I think, question is to first define what we're talking about, because it's easy to um, intend one thing, but uh, your reader is making different assumptions. So I tried to be clear about what I thought we did have access to. And one thing we clearly don't have access to is the actual inner experience of ancient Israelites. We, we have no way of knowing uh, what that was. We also related to that, we don't know how they represented themselves to themselves. Um, you know, in if we... If it had been a culture that had a practice of, of uh, journaling, you know, every day we go home and we journal and we found those documents, then we would at least know how they were representing themselves to themselves. But we don't have that. What we've got are self-presentations that is, and, and these are not spontaneous self-presentations, but literary presentations. So we're at two or three removes, but still the self-presentations in standard genres or uh, in narrative literature, the author's representation of a character, uh, those things will not be completely discontinuous from people's experience because we learn from culture how to understand ourselves. So, yeah, with those caveats um, and understanding that uh, we're at some distance from immediate experience, then I think we can learn some interesting things. And it also makes us look at our own culture a little differently when we realize how the role of cultural self-representations function. Right. And, and you get into, in your book, the complexity of... Um, not only accessing the inner self and the, the impossibility of accessing the inner self of ancient people, um, but also the idea that even if you could, how, you know, we, we don't always know what we're doing when we do what we do. I remember you said in class one time, it was really, um, I don't know if I'll get it exactly right. We we might know what we do. We might know why we do what we do, but we might not know what what we do we does. Do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And, and it's Michel uh, Foucault. <laughs> okay, and, and just that that sort of um, difficulty in knowing ourselves in the first place. Um, but I think I think the choice of like focusing on representation was was really helpful because you note certain shifts taking place from ancient, the oldest Israelite literature, and so far as we can discern that, to later biblical, and then into the Second Temple period. So, what what are some of the major um, 
shifts in the presentation of the self that you wanted to draw attention to in this book? Yeah, you know, in in part, uh, what you just said about the fact that what I try to do is find changes or shifts, because that's when we know something is happening, and and we contextually show it. So it's not simply a projection onto it. We know that there is something that we can point to objectively and. We might not agree about the interpretation, but we can see it in the text. Um, and one of the things that um, I noticed is um, the the way, and, and I really do tie this strand of change to um, the problems for the sense of agency that were brought on by the um, destruction of Judah by the Babylonians, um, because Deuteronomy had had such prominence in helping people think about the nature of the nation's moral agency. And then when this destruction comes, the conclusion follows that there's something really wrong, not just with our agency, but with ourselves as agents. And so I started to look for a shift from how you talk about failed moral agency. And do you start to see this shifting to not just a functional problem, but an ontological problem? There's something wrong with us and our moral equipment. Hmm. And that equipment being things like the heart or the spirit within us. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, And you can find these shifts in the um, even within a single book like Deuteronomy, um, you start to see. I mean, early on, there's a, well language that probably originates in Jeremiah about circumcising the foreskin of the heart, and Jeremiah and Deuteronomy have some passages in which it talks about this is something that people should do for themselves. So that assumes yes, there's a problem, but you can fix it. Then, in what appear to be the later edited editions, it shifts. And this is something that God has to do for the people. They cannot do it for themselves. And so that seems to be an indication of further reflection on how serious the problem is and where it lies. And the solution is we don't have the agency. And so we have to project it onto God, who then somehow affects the change that allows the reestablishment of moral agency. Yeah, and and that brings us to Ezekiel's pretty radical portrait. But um, just going back to Deuteronomy for a moment, so I I thought that was really helpful to notice the shift from Deuteronomy 10, I think it is, where the people are summoned to circumcise your heart. So that assumes people have the ability to change their ways. I don't know if it's necessarily optimistic about whether they will, but it's possible. And and then having gone through exile, Deuteronomy 30, uh, if this is a later text, it it is suggesting that, well, even if it isn't, it's suggesting that um, God has to do this to you. And then Ezekiel kind of takes that, not necessarily from Deuteronomy, but radicalizes it, right? So so what are, what are some ways that, you know, what... In what way was Ezekiel important to your study? Mm-hmm. Um, well, Ezekiel is important because um, he 
well, as you say, he radicalizes the problem and he takes Israel's uh, moral incapacity all the way back to its origins. So in Ezekiel 20 um, and also in the passages in chapter 16, chapter 23, um, there is no time in which the people seem to have been able to be functioning moral agents. And the heart of stone is obviously as um, there's no possible way for that to function. And Ezekiel basically uses, it's very hard to tell if he's aware of what we know as the creation traditions in Genesis 2 to 3 or some form of them. But in chapters 36 and in 37, you get what appears to be um, a model of a recreation of the human. So I take out your heart of stone, I give you a heart of flesh, uh, and th and then that enables you to be able to um, follow my laws. Or in chapter 37, of course, you really do have the re-inspiration of the dead. Mm -hmm. And... and um, is is Ezekiel an outlier, or is Ezekiel kind of heralding a, a new direction in thought that that we see persisting into the Second Temple period? Well, I think what's most interesting, I mean, it, Ezekiel's rhetoric is um, obviously framed for a particular situation. Um, one of my students in class said, you know, he said, I really didn't like Ezekiel and all of his, his very negativity. But he said, then I started thinking about Ezekiel and a 12-step program. And he said, first, you have to hit bottom. And Ezekiel helps his community hit bottom. Right. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's a great way of thinking about it. I, well, it did enable him yeah. to keep reading Ezekiel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I, what I find is interesting is clearly there was some... Uh, fascination with Ezekiel's imagery. And one of the earliest places where you see that picked up is in Psalm 51. And what's so interesting there, and, and, and this is what I think is maybe not even intentional, but when Ezekiel is uh, basically explaining to people, this is why you're such uh, moral screw-ups, and God has got to step in to um, alter you, cleanse you, and whatnot. Well, that language, though, comes into a petitionary prayer in, um, because the people in Ezekiel, they don't really get how bad they are because they don't have any moral consciousness until after God has effected that change. But you take that language and you put it in a petitionary prayer, and the petitioner knows there's a problem before the problem has been fixed. And so by picking up Ezekiel's language and putting it into a petitionary prayer, that speech act changes the significance. And now the speaker is aware there's something horribly wrong with me, with my heart, with my spirit, and I need help. I don't need help against my enemies. I don't need help against disease. I need help against myself. That's new. And there you're just beginning to see the possibilities for this language opening up a self-reflexive and what we might call a kind of interiority. So I want to just stick on that point for a moment. So the 
the recognition that there's something wrong with me that I can't change it is a shift from what? What, what, what was it before that? Well, if you look yeah. at, you know, and, and really it's the psalmic literature is the most helpful, although you can find similar things in uh, hortatory literature as well. But in the psalmic literature, um, the problems are, tend to be social, uh, my enemies, or uh, physical, uh, which, but again, um, ill health oftentimes is seen as uh, reflective of something larger that is out of whack. Even when they talk about sin, um, sin seems to be a kind of, oh dear, I now I have ticked off the deity and the deity is uh, reacting negatively to me. It's largely a social problem that's got to be resolved. And so, uh, yeah, we need to get this cleared up and we can get this cleared up. And here I am being as humble as I can. Help me. So even when sin is involved, it's not about a sinful condition. And that's the shift. It, and Miriam Brand was the one who made this distinction, and I found it so helpful between individual sins, which are a problem which have to be dealt with, and a sinful condition, which I'm stuck with, and there's no way I can deal with it. I need help. Again, I need help for something that is wrong with me. Right. And, and I think of some of those earlier Psalms that you mentioned, and and sometimes sin, iniquities, are are sort of one of the many problems they're facing. So, um, you know, my body's in rough shape, I've got sins, my enemies are attacking me. You know, it doesn't even necessarily sit as the central affliction one is facing. You right. Know? It's kind of like, let me just go through every possibility here. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So... Um, it, what are some of the ways these ideas gain steam or develop in the Dead Sea Scrolls? So you talk about the two spirits um, teaching and the Hodeot and, you know, what, what are some of the ways that yeah. these develop? Well, th they already inherit a fairly developed tradition. So some of the non-sectarian psalms that are probably from the late Persian, early Hellenistic period are kind of the bridge. And they begin to develop this notion of what I call the alien within. Um, and some of it's the development of speculation on the Yetzer Hara, the inclination to evil, which... Um, Ishai Rosen's V has shown, starts to pick up uh, language that's used elsewhere for demons. And so it's as though there is somehow this thing, which is a part of my own psychological makeup, my own uh, somatic psychology, uh, but it has, it functions almost like an inner demon. And there's another psalm that talks about sin as being like a parasitic plant that's growing within me. Or another one that talks about, don't let a Satan rule over me. Um, and so this language of um, somehow the body being a site where an alien force takes root. And um, so the... Um, the, the the speaker in these psalms is uh, appealing to God for assistance against this alienate this alien within or this alienated aspect of the self. Now the Dead Sea Scrolls, I mean, there's 
uh, again, this Dead Sea Scrolls are, don't represent just a single line of thought, but some of them take it in a dualistic direction. And they see the body as a place for uh, a conflict between these evil spirits, demonic spirits, and then an appeal to God for strengthening of good spirit, which fights against it. And so what happens in these, when it goes fully dualistic, and this will be the case in the Two Spirits uh, treatise, where um, uh, the body uh, becomes the site for a conflict between the spirit of light and the spirit of darkness, which is metaphysical, but also psychological. Um, And the interesting thing that happens in terms of subjectivity is that when you've uh, in contrast to the Psalms, which were saying, oh, there's something wrong with my heart. God, help me fix this. In this one, the person is more situated as a spectator, observing that some, this conflict is going on within. And the, the person may identify with the spirit of good, um, but they are watching almost themselves become a scene of activity which is enacted on the psychological level as it's being enacted on the metaphysical level. Yeah, I thought that was so interesting. And and you 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 say that here they are describing this inner conflict. And but there's not a sense of strong agency in being able to do anything about it, but rather as a spectator to come to know it. So what's the point of that? <laughs> Well, yeah, I know we are so steeped into the notion of agency as volitional. And to be an agent is to be able to do something. And this is why I think we have so much difficulty. Well, maybe the guy in the wool Calvinists don't have any trouble with it, but most of us have trouble trouble with um, knowledge as agency. But in a predestinarian scenario, which the Two Spirits Treatise is highly predestinarian, um, it's not, well, it's hard for us even to talk about how agency functions. First of all, you have to know and understand what is going on. And that's the primary form that I think agency takes is as knowledge, uh, sort of here's the map, you are here. (laughs) But there's a sense in which you also have to assent to it. When you have the knowledge, it is not just enough to say, whoa, what a crazy plane ride. Um, Instead, you have to assent to it, identify with it, choose it. And and so an, an agency of volition is somehow also present, but in your, um, identifying with it. And and to a certain extent, I mean, I wouldn't want to say that these people are ever uh, just simply predestinarian. Predestinarian thought and this kind of knowledge as agency is only one part. If you switch to another way of thinking, then you're going to be talking about moral agency again in an autonomous fashion. So we need complementary models and purity, nah, nah, purity of thought, nah. We need complementary models when each one has its own role to play. 
Yeah, you talk about that as code switching, I think is what you, you the the term you use where you where the um perhaps even the sectarian community themselves, would that be fair to say, are switching between models or at least within broader within early Judaism? What where would you locate that? Oh, you can, within the um uh the community rule, the Sarek Kayachad, you can probably find about five different models of agency and they are the reason that we don't notice them as uh, intention is that they're each one embedded in a discourse in which that model of agency makes sense. So I like to think of models of agency as tools. They're conceptual tools. And when you've got a problem, you don't you look into your toolbox and you look for the one that's going to help you solve the problem. Right. So, so your book then, you're not just tracing one trajectory toward one certain model, but rather the emergence of variations of conceptions of the self and agency. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, that, that's one of the things I learned in writing this book. I thought I was going for a kind of an evolutionary model in which, you know, it's just here, I'll show you how it developed. But it is plural. And what I began to appreciate and notice in my own contemporary thinking is that, oh, yeah, we do all operate with a lot of logically contradictory models about things. And um, they are like tools in that they will help us. And then if we get to a point where, oh, it's not really helpful in this context, we'll tend to switch to another one. And anthropologists have actually studied this too. That, so that, it, it's, yeah. it's recognized. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of, of how metaphors work too, where like, let's say we're talking about the, a doctrine of God, certain metaphors might connect with people in a certain period of life. And they, they reach for that metaphor, God as rock, God as mother, God as savior and and so but each of those has their metaphorical limit to to what they can do and so appealing to different metaphors at different times is kind of how we operate but they don't all mash together into one coherent super metaphor exactly yeah yeah and and uh metaphors i think is a really good um a parallel to what i'm talking about yeah um I want to just switch gears and ask some different kinds of questions that are unrelated to your book, um, kind of like a speed round. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm curious about an interesting book that you've read recently. Yes, yes. Um, I just finished reading Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life, which is all about fungi or fungi or however you pronounce that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this is like... Um, is this like the overstory, but the understory? Like the, because uh, there's... <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, exactly. And in fact, part of what he's taking, I mean, one of the reasons why I like this book so much is that it really does um, change how we think about fundamental aspects of life itself. And it challenges the notion of anything being autonomous um, and that was one of the things that I actually uh, came to the conclusion of in writing my book is that the ancient Israelites really seldom thought about human beings as autonomous. And um, so this book on the fungi um, really says, you know, at the the further down you go into life itself, there's no 
individual we're all connected into entangled life. So yes, the overstory talked about it as though trees were the agents and fungi were just the pipes. And he says, no, no, no. The fungi have as much agency as the trees do. And he also goes to metaphors and he said, any, so we keep wanting to use human metaphors for what's going on. And he says, each one of them is helpful to a point and then they mislead. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> our, our is a forest a brain is a forest, a community. Yeah. That there's a, there's a professor here at the university of British Columbia who just wrote a book called finding the mother tree. Oh, I read that one too. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, I I've tried to get in touch with her, but, um, haven't been able to yet, but she's, uh, yeah, she, I mean, she, she talks about fungi a lot in that book and, and, that was part no, of her. Her, her research was yeah. absolutely fundamental. And um, Merlin Sheldrake pays her a lot of, gives her a lot of credit for transforming people's understanding. Yeah. And, and um, I had no idea like how recently, um, you know, Canada was spraying Roundup on entire forests. You know, that that was shocking. Um, it, it was indeed. It really was. But it, this is a good example of how persistent good science is able to overcome even entrenched bureaucratic administration. It's not easy, but sometimes there are those success stories. Yeah. Yeah. There are other parallels for that. Okay. What, what uh, sustains you as an academic? Hmm. Um, curiosity. I just, uh, you can think you've, you know, stayed with the subject and you know what's going on. And then somehow you'll realize, I don't get this at all. There's something here that is just mystifying to me. And you just have to go look. Uh, And you mentioned you're working on another project right now. Um, What else are you up to? What else are you working on? Well, I... um, (laughs) Foolishly or not, agreed to do a commentary on the Hodayot uh, for Oxford University Press. And then my good friend Eileen Schuller um, somehow got me to agree to partner with her on doing the Hermenea commentary. So I'll be spending a lot of time with those, uh, with the Hodayot. And you've spent a lot of time with them. So is this another case where your curiosity sustains you through a project like that? <laughs> I keep finding all of these things. I think, oh, I was dead wrong on what I said a few years ago. Oh, now I see it so much better. Uh, it's, it's, it's not unlike friendships. You know, we think we know someone quite well, and then they do something that surprises us, and we realize, no, there's a whole lot I still don't know about this person. And I think that's what keeps relationships interesting. And even our relationships with our beloved texts are like that, too. Always have the capacity to surprise. (laughs) Um, When you think about collegiality, what stories pop into your mind? Okay. um, And again, I'll I'll go back to sometimes in the history of scrolls research. There, when just before I came into the field, there was a time of real animosity, having to do with who had access and who did not have access. And um, the scholars who were senior to me, they oftentimes had really bad relationships, and they didn't share. Um, And uh, in fact, it was uh, in my case, I got into scrolls work because my advisor 
shared with me access to scrolls that he was not sharing with his peers. And I was concerned. I thought, oh God, now they will hate me too. And they did not. They still objected to the uh, the way the scrolls had been or not been shared, but they were generous in um, evaluating my work on its own merits, not on whose student I was. And I realized as my generation and the next generation got into this work, there was a conscious effort to be kind and to uh, be constructive. And even when there were quirky voices that I thought, why are they allowing that person on the program? There was a sense that, no, we're going to include them too. And we will deal with their views on the merits, not on a kind of, uh, well, if we keep them excluded, we don't have to deal with them. So I really saw modeled in some of that a conscious effort to create a community of generous discourse. And, you know, tried to do that also in establishing the ethos in our teaching. Yeah. I mean, I experienced that in the doctoral program at Emory. Um, I remember when I came and interviewed, we all, like those of us who were interviewing, all got together and 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 sort of shared notes on on what we could expect. You know, so there was like, there's like an, a, a collegiality emerging already. And I think that was fostered reciprocally by Emory as well. And I, you know, people talk about these cutthroat programs where students are pitted against each other. And um, that was not my experience at all. So. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it, it does need to be done with some intentionality because um, it's so easy for competitiveness to um, destroy what really should be uh, a community of mutual intellectual delight. Yeah. I remember you giving a talk, I think I watched it online, um, on something like the inferiority complex in academia. And I'm wondering what advice you have for academics or students who experience this. Okay. I have to tell you, I still struggle with it to this day. <laughs> and um, in part, um, I think that it's, it's helpful when I discovered how many other people do too and people whom I look up to. One of the things I realized, though, was that whenever I was feeling um, anxious about, oh, so-and-so is so much better than I am, I had to stop back and say, no, no, what I'm trying to say is so-and-so has a specific area or, or capacity for a certain thing that I admire very much and I recognize I don't have that, but that doesn't mean I don't have anything. And so I was able to keep it from being a global judgment and able to say, I can appreciate what so-and-so does, and then realize, but I also have some potato salad to bring to the picnic. <laughs> <laughs> More than that. <laughs> and then finally, you know, you realize, gee, if I'm saying that I'm a schmuck, what does that say about the people who accepted my articles for publication <laughs> or granted me my degree? You know, I'm having to say they're schmucks too. Yeah. When will so they finally, find out? Yeah. Finally, you just have to develop a sense of humor and say, that's just part of the process and try to be a little more self-accepting. Yeah. And I think you, you mentioned too, which I thought was really helpful that like different kinds of scholars. So, you know, 
maybe it's easy to look at someone who who's encyclopedic and they just they've got everything on tap and that that is a certain kind of scholar and it has its benefits but then there are others who are creatives who synthesize different f- fields and you know so just being able to know that there are different ways of being a scholar i think was really helpful yeah, absolutely and i tried to make that a practice in advising um graduate students is to say pay attention to what kind of scholar or intellectual you are and give some thought to that because you will notice that you're drawn to certain kinds of questions or you delight in certain kinds of research. And so learn about yourself and play to your strengths. Um, because, oh, yeah, I could name any number of people and say, I wish I could write like that. I wish I could do that kind of research. And finally, you have to say, eh, but what I've been given is the interest and the desire and the capacity to do this kind. So let me try to do what I can do. Yeah, fabulous. Um, what do you think is the most significant book in Second Temple Jewish literature in the last 50 years? <laughs> oh, I think it's very hard to say. No one likes to pick. No, but I think if there was one that really shifted us, it was uh, Martin Hengel's um, uh, book on Judaism and Hellenism. Uh, and he really, I think, was influential in starting a, a way of thinking that's still uh, generating fruitfulness, and that is locating uh, Judaism, uh, even Palestinian Judaism, within the larger Hellenistic world. And so you can see this uh, going on most recently, some of the work of Annette Yoshiko-Reed, uh, who's continuing and showing some new ways of thinking about this. So, um, yeah, I think that might be. Yeah, so he, if I'm right, he did a kind of demolition job on the on the sharp divide between sort of Jewish thinking or Jewish categories and Hellenistic categories. Yeah, and, and you know, there are certainly are ways in which uh, Judaism that wrote in Hebrew and Aramaic retained a certain kind of real distinctiveness. But even there, you could see how a lot of the interests and the categories and the assumptions were shared within the broader Mediterranean world. And in fact, uh, I ended up my book by saying, you know, it's time we went back and revisited that question about the uh, Qumran or the Yahad community and the Stoics. Um, That was toyed with a long time ago and then kind of got dropped. And I think it's time to pick it up again. So how, how did the, uh, going back to your book, how did the early chapters of Genesis factor in your study? Um, I, I mean, that that was a fascinating section, particularly on Genesis 2 to 4, uh, well, and 6 as well. Um, what would you say surprised you or that you found fascinating to go back to such familiar texts and to bring such really illuminating insights there? Well, thank, you know, it was funny. I kept avoiding and avoiding and avoiding writing that chapter because it's so overwhelming to pick up and, and look at that text. Um, but one of the things that shocked me was how much resistance to what I would call the narrative meaning of Genesis 2 to 3 one finds in the Second Temple period. Um, ben Sira just basically finds a way to read it into saying the opposite of what it clearly says. 
and other um, uh, text for uh, for Q instruction. Um, it really turns it on its head because and, and we don't know if there was another creation account um, that talked about the garden as the place where God gives knowledge of good and evil, or if these texts were simply subverting Genesis 2 to 3. But there is a quiet battle going on. And the other thing that, that I found interesting was that in Genesis 2 and 3, of course, human materiality, there's nothing negative about it. It's just, that's what God does. God takes the clay and the divine spit or whatever and um, makes humans like you'd make pottery. But boy, there is another line of thought which mines the dust image in um, uh, Genesis 2 to 3 and creates out of that a very negative anthropology and in its most radical form in the Hodayot, God creates people to be morally abhorrent. That's the purpose. God creates people as morally abhorrent beings, and then God elects a certain number of them to receive a second creation, a la Ezekiel, in which God then purifies them and puts in a divine spirit and recreates them, all for the greater glory of God. Now, does this sound like Calvin? <laughs> it does. I, you know, there's, there's a, you know, if you just had the Hodeot, you, you would come out a Calvinist, right? I think so. <laughs> um, you also, um, you helped bring clarity on the role of the animals in Genesis 2. I don't know if you want to talk about, like, what significance they play. It's not It's not just about Genesis 1, like you have a job to take care of these animals. In fact, human care for animals is not a feature there. Yeah. yeah uh, the, the, I first got hold of this perception uh, from an article by uh, Baird Calicott, who is an environmental philosopher. And he uh, wrote an article called uh, Genesis and John Muir. And um, he was reading Genesis from an, um, an ecological perspective. And then uh, also Rob O'Dean, uh, in a very early article, had written about the significance of clothes. And so when I went back with these perspectives in mind, and I said, oh, you know, um, this narrative is basically part of that ancient question about who are human beings and how are we related on the one hand to animals with whom we share so many things and divine beings with whom we also share certain characteristics and features. And so when you look at Genesis 2 to 3 that way, um, it seems very clearly to be a narrative about how humans were initially created along with other animals as as one type, one species, we might say, and then by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of um, good and bad, they acquire a divine characteristic. And so as we become like God or like gods, we cease to be at one with animals. 
And so um, in the um, in the narrative, the first thing that human beings uh, the first thing after human beings eat of the fruit, they notice that they're naked. And I don't think that has to do with sexuality per entirely, it's an element there. But um, it's been pointed out that nakedness is a category that only refly, uh, refers to humans. You don't say that animals are naked. Um, but humans, because we are not just conscious, but self-conscious, reflexive, to a greater extent than animals are, we become self-aware, and so uh, uh, an awareness of our bodies and a sense of shame about being exposed are one of the things that differentiate humans. Some humans, uh, rare, rare human groups, are, are fine with nakedness all the time. But for the most part, this is a differentiation between humans and animals. And so I think that this is one of those wonderfully perceptive ancient stories that sees in our peculiar type of consciousness that which makes us somewhat like the divine, but it also makes us somewhat different from the animals. Yeah. And and that difference comes out in the naming too of like the inability to find a corresponding other among the animals. And, and so there's that interest in the differentiation between humans and animals. Yeah, at that yeah. point. Although the critical element comes after that, um, and so it's at that moment of and and if you really think, you know, uh, Genesis two to three is actually an evolutionary story. Mm, yeah, <laughs> because we start out being at, at one with the animals, and then something happens with our big brains, and then all of a sudden, uh, we're not so much like them anymore. Huh. Um, Take that, fundamentalists. Yeah. It's about evolution. <laughs> <laughs> Scandalous. Um, <laughs> now, you, you also talk about the taking of the fruit. And I just wanted to read a quote from page, page 123 in your book. You said, the author knows that human beings are, in fact, characterized by the capacity for discriminating judgment. So, in other words, like you mentioned how the, they obviously have the choice of choosing to take the fruit or not. So, there's some element of that. The quality represented by the tree of knowledge. That is a necessary part of what it means to be human. But the story takes the reader back to the moment when this capacity to make judgments represented symbolically by the desirable fruit was both outside of the human and yet seen and longed for, felt for the first time as a necessary part of who humans are. So I just wonder if you could comment on that, the, the role of desire in Genesis 3 and, and what that tells us? Yeah. You know, a number of people have read Genesis 2 to 3 in terms of uh, a story of uh, maturation or development. And I think there is a point to that. Um, if we think about uh, a child of two or three years old, um, they certainly have the capacity for desire. They see something, they want something, they feel an urgency about it. It has to be theirs. Um, and, but they don't have the ability to 
say why or to reflect on it or to judge whether the consequences are of doing this even when they've been told no. <laughs> <laughs> they get no, yeah. but they don't always get why. <laughs> yeah. So um, they will reach for this forbidden fruit. Um, and so, um, yeah, and so I think that the dynamics are explained better by looking at the way desire functions, because there is a certain, uh, I mean, there's, there's, there is a certain cognition, but it's not that fully developed cognition. An older child is going to say, I'm not supposed to do this because... And um, so they are negotiating uh, a, a sense between good and bad. Um, but they're at an earlier stage, that's not... And my dog does this too. <laughs> my dog gets no. Yeah. But my dog may also take the turkey sandwich off the counter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but hard it has to resist. Made him, has not made him any wiser. <laughs> Doesn't have that... Some people talk about Genesis three as a fall upward. Is that do do you like that way of talking about it? Or uh, I think that's quite legitimate because uh, if you think about it, um, it it enables a kind of relationship. I mean, there's no possibility of a covenant relationship with all the moral um, responsibility that entails until people have acquired that capacity for uh, deliberative rationality and the ability to 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 choose in a way that goes beyond just a response to no. Um, so yes, in that sense, um, there is something that is a fall upwards. Um, just in closing here, I'm wondering if you could comment on where you see your work leading. Where would you like to see people pick this up? You mentioned stoicism as one possible uh, area of further research. Uh, any others? Oh, you know, I just realized how I just scratched the surface on looking at a number of topics. Uh, one of the things that I found so useful as a tool was uh, cognitive anthropology and the fact that there are certain cognitive models that are not explicit. I mean, I discovered that if you look at prepositions, you learn things that are never explicit. When is the spirit described as being all upon someone? When is the spirit described as being buh, in someone? And as soon as you start to see, oh, they're making a differentiation about different uh, aspects of divine spirit and human bodies that nobody's explicitly talking about, theorizing, but you can find it. So the more we look for the assumptions that make possible certain kinds of speech, the more we can learn about a whole lot of topics. So that's certainly one thing. The other thing where I just scratched the surface is um, I was tracking mostly this um, the, the role of anxiety about agency in changing the way people think about interiority. But there's so many, there's such a wide interest in subjectivity in Second Temple period that all of that, I think much of it remains to be explored. Theory of mind, uh, as it's used in literary studies, I've just played around with it just a little bit. And I think there's a whole lot that can be done there. 
So all kinds of things. Yeah, I, I you know, there's there's a sort of um, that landmark article, is it Stendhal, like Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. What he talks about in that article in terms of interiority development of introspection, do you see the same thing in Second Temple literature or is it of a different sort? Yeah, it's of a different sort. <clears throat> and I think this is why early on, I mean, Schindel's article was extremely important and I think a very important corrective. And people like David Lambert, I think, are uh, also helping us to see where we can wrongly import a particular understanding of self-subjectivity, interiority, into ancient texts. And the trick is to go back and patiently see what sort of symbolic structures they're creating, what dynamics are in play, what, how they function. And we then can begin to see, oh yeah, there's something that we can legitimately call interiority. But it's not like Seneca's. It's not like Luther's. It's not like um, it's it's not like the Dalai Lamas. <laughs> so so it's that sense of how can we talk about something that has perhaps a family resemblance, but we can't merge it all into one thing, particularly not the one we're most familiar with. Yeah, and there are different models operating simultaneously. So even that diversity is another piece of piece of the puzzle. Oh yes, as someone said. Who the whole notion of the Western self? No, ask David Hume. He had a very different idea. (laughs) (laughs) One more thing is, um, you know, there's a long discussion debate about whether you know ancient Israelites had a a unified view of the self. um, You know, without uh, you know distinguishing the spirit or the soul, um, a tripartite understanding of the self versus a. What are some of the ways your study? confirmed or complicated that picture? Yeah, um, there's been a lot of work. Oh, the German scholars have been doing some wonderful things on um, anthropology, the body, etc. Um, and um, uh, yeah, it, I, I tried to pay attention to, like I say, I, one of the assumptions that I made was that neurophysiologically, there's a certain set of capacities that all homo sapiens are equipped with. But cultures don't always pay attention to those features and symbolize them. So um, in one sense, um, ancient Israelite uh, culture early on wasn't very interested in what's called sub-individual agency. That is what we experience as inner conflict or whatnot. And so those scholars who have said, you know, it tends to be a kind of a, a holistic understanding of the self. I think by and large, they're correctly describing most of what you find in uh, certainly First Temple Judaism. With You can find the odd exception, which kind of betrays the fact that, oh, yeah, they really were aware of inner conflict. Um, but then in Second Temple Judaism, like I say, you, you track those little textual changes that show, oh, now for some reason they've gotten interested in that. And they already had the vocabulary to deal with this because they talk about the different body parts as possibly, you know, agential. And, um, but earlier on, it had been more like synecdoche. You could talk about the hand, but that's still 
it's it's you who's doing that. But then if the heart becomes problematic, I found the most useful language to talk about this from uh, William James. And he said, the self is an I and a me. That is the perceiving consciousness and that which it perceives. And that perceiving consciousness can reflexively turn back on itself. The me, I see me. And if you look at, use that little template and look at the shifts in the language in um, the texts, you can see that early on, a lot of body parts can represent I. Um, but in Second Temple period in particular, the I can take a look at them as a me, an objectified part of the self. And um, the, the wonderful uh, set of poems, Barki Nafshi from the Dead Sea Scrolls, <laughs> they just go through a whole catalog of body parts and can talk about them as being quite problematic and in need of divine repair, etc. So this shift in the way language is used shows you that, yeah, they can still talk about the body as unified, but they've also discovered how their language can talk about it as differentiated in ways that, uh, uh, that do develop a more complex subjectivity. Well, Carol, I so appreciate what you've done in this book and even more so the opportunity to speak with you. So thanks so much for uh, the interview with OnScript. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.